I invite you to take your scriptures and open up to Revelation chapter 21. Surveys have shown that children 12 years of age and younger start asking the question, are we there yet, two hours and 23 minutes into a long drive. And arguments, they say, typically break out 14 minutes after the first time they ask the question. And I think we've been, I think, I think this is the 33rd sermon in the series of Revelation that we have been going through. And the question some of us may have been asking is, particularly in the judgment section, is are we there yet? And like all journeys, there is a destination. And this, the study of this book, and a book that a lot of uh, pastors and teachers stopped teaching in the fifth chapter... Uh, just recently, I heard uh, that this statistic is proven, proven true, that a pastor made it through the letters to the churches, got to chapter five, went back into Daniel and then departed like we were never in Revelation and went into the Gospel of John. Uh, but this particular book comes with its own blessing for those who read it out loud, for those who listen to it and for those who obey it, all that is written Therein, Revelation for us has been like a journey too. Uh, we were not there yet, even though we considered two of the seven churches that had nothing that Jesus corrected about them. Do you know that a good and faithful and obedient and loving church is not the destination? We weren't there yet when recently we considered Christ's thousand year rule on earth. You understand that is not heaven. There's still a huge battle that rages right after that time period given. We're not there yet, even though the millennium will be unique in that Christ is ruling. So in chapter 21, are we there yet? How would you answer that? Eschatologically, from a book study, yes. From a time period, are we there yet? Let me, let, me, let me share with you Jesus' exact words from the Gospel of Mark. He says this in Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 37. No one knows. No one knows. And I don't, it is beyond me how people keep trying to set a date on this time period. And we keep asking, are we there yet? And I was sharing with Sam just before the service that I think in a, the, the, literary, the literary structure of Revelation is sort of like our life um, from new birth. We see this incredible vision of the glorified Christ, the exalted, risen Christ. And then we realize that in the church there's problems and there's suffering and there's persecution and there's a call for endurance. And then we see, we're reminded that, that God is at the center on his throne and the lamb is there and then we plunge off into all these judgments just like life and trials and then we're there so are we there yet jesus said but concerning that day or that hour no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son but only the father well how do we respond to that jesus will tell you be on guard Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. 
And Jesus says this three different times. He says, stay awake. And a matter of fact, we're talking about our study through Revelation is like a fascinating journey. Listen to what Jesus says. It is like a man going on a journey. What is? Life, waiting, enduring, at times despairing, then casting our hope in Christ. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work. By the way, we're the servants in this illustration. We each have a work to do, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, Jesus says, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So how do we stay awake? Regardless of what we faced last week, regardless of what we face this week, we keep casting our hope on that day when Jesus returns. We keep setting our affections on things above and not on things on the earth. I am not sure that we understand what true, sustained joy really is. I think we understand joy like a postcard or a Snapchat or like this really little glimpse. But eventually, even our good joys, whether they be relationships Material prosperity, status, events, experiences, other pleasures in this life, other non-sinful pleasures in this life, they are tainted with sin. You can have a really great two hours, and then somebody comes in with an awful attitude, and it's tainted. They represent something is true, so just think about something where this past weekend you had great delight, but then that, that, that very day... You were cast down. It represented something that is true, but something that can only be fulfilled eternally in God. And that is heavenly bliss, perfect delight and never ending joy, never ending joy. In chapter one, we are purposely given at the beginning this glorious picture of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to keep that in mind through the rest of this book. In chapters 2 and 3, we're given seven pastoral prophetic letters to actual local churches where Jesus walks in their midst. In chapters 4 and 5, we were given the central and centering vision of the throne of God and the Lamb of God. The throne of God is mentioned 43 times. The Lamb, in reference to Jesus Christ, is mentioned 28 times. And together, the throne and the Lamb, they constitute what we would call the interpretive or the hermeneutical key to the entire book. So even when you get into the judgments, which take up half the book, you're going to keep coming back to the throne and to the lamb. Nearly half of the book. Okay. I had no, I had no, I knew the others did weren't, weren't amplified, but when you're up here, you don't really know. Thank you, gentlemen. Or Mindy, it was probably Mindy. In chapters 6 through 20, we are given visions of judgment, nearly half of the book. And this is the message. And why, why half of the book? I would love 22 two chapters just on the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. But we don't get that. We get nearly half a book about judgments. Here is what it's saying to the church. 
Babylon is doomed. The dragon, who is the devil, is doomed. His beast is doomed. The false prophet is doomed. All those who reject God are doomed. And the world is fading away. And this is how Revelation portrays that. In, in series of sevens. Seven seals, seven angels with trumpets, and seven angels with bowls. And the seventh bowl of that seven bowls is extended and developed even further. The volume and the repetition of the judgments are intended to press on this reality. The reality of judgment to all those who are under an illusion. And here's the illusion they are under. That God really doesn't care. That God really isn't just. That God is actually going to sweep all this under the proverbial carpet and turn and look away. And you have nearly half of the book of Revelation that says this. That is a lie. It is an illusion. And that's why you have this volume and this repetition. Seven and seven and seven. And the seventh of these seven is going to be developed even farther. These visions of judgment, I was thinking as I was reading this and, and contemplating where we have come and thought of the last words spoken by Gandalf the Grey in the Fellowship of the Ring when Balrog is about to throw him and pull him in the abyss. You remember what he says? Fly, you fools. And he goes down into the abyss. The volume and the repetition are saying this to a lost world. Fly, you fools, to the one who can save. But these judgments are also an exhortation to the church. It's not just a warning to unbelievers. It's an exhortation to the church of judgment is evidence of victory. Because you remember at the end of this section, and it's at the end of this section of judgments that you see one coming and riding on a white horse. And he has a name and that name is on his robe, and that name is on his thigh. Christ wears the title on his robe, the symbol of his authority. He wears it on his thigh, which is the symbol of strength and power. Remember what we noticed about this rider on a white horse, this exalted Christ, the king. Even before the battle, his robe is dipped in what? Blood. Even before the battle. So it seems to be his own blood since he reigns as king because of, not in spite of, he's the lamb. See, here's what we need to understand when, we, when we're about to enter into chapter 21. Revelation is not putting forward two different Christologies, one of strength and one of weakness. It's not putting forward Jesus Christ as the lion and, differently, Jesus Christ as the lamb. He is the lion because he's the lamb. He reigns because he is the slain lamb. That gives him the right to reign, as Revelation 19 says, King of kings and Lord of lords. These descriptions taking out, taken from the Old Testament. Then in chapter 20, that final chapter in this huge section on God's judgments, we see ultimate victory and ultimate judgment. When death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Humanity's final and worst enemies are completely and eternally destroyed. And remember what we saw in Revelation 20. We saw Satan bound. And who was he bound by? And I believe this is significant. 
an unnamed angel. God did not need to bind him himself. An unnamed angel binds Satan. There's a thousand year reign. We're not there yet. Satan's final overthrow. We're not there yet. And the last judgment, what most of us have have heard called the great white throne judgment. And we're not there yet. And chapter 20 concludes with this affirmation by John. Anyone whose name did not appear in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. John John sees this sharp contrast between those who are saved and those who are not. Those who will enjoy heavenly bliss in the presence of God and those who will find their portion in the lake of fire. And this is where Revelation has been moving all along. Twenty chapters have been taking us to a destination. One writer has called it a triple terminus. It's the conclusion of Revelation. It's the conclusion of the entire New Testament. And it's the conclusion of the entire Bible. The final two chapters that we are about to look at support the weight of 1,187 other chapters. And that's where we're at this morning. So we're here. And we're only going to look at the first four verses. So some of you are like, Tim read a lot of verses this morning. Um, And that was a long introduction. No, we're looking at four verses. We're going to slow the velocity down because this is our destination. Genesis and Revelation of the Bible's bookends. And we're going to note this probably next week, how, how similar Genesis and Revelation are to one another. Okay, you have, you have life in the garden, the tree of life. You have life in heaven. You have a garden. You have a new garden. And you have all these things that that are showing you something about this new heaven and this new earth and this new Jerusalem. Genesis was about beginnings and origins and the first days. Revelation is about an unveiling and end times and last days. But look at the basic vision. There's only two big points today. The basic vision and this voice from the throne. Look at the basic vision. Look at verse 1 again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice how often that word new is used. New is used of heaven. It's used of earth. Interestingly, sometimes we only we have this sort of concept that there's only this thing called heaven. But there is a new earth, a new heaven, and a new Jerusalem. And here's what I want you to note and remember this morning. This is new, not just another of the same kind. The word that is used here refers to new in kind completely. For example... Uh, on our time away, we went to Silver Springs, Florida. It is the largest artesian spring in the world and the site of the oldest commercial tourist attraction in Florida. The springs were the first tourist attraction in Florida, and it was the go-to spot in the 1800s. It drew more than one million visitors a year to its 242-acre site, Silver Springs. Some of you are like, where is that? Okay, exactly. Where is that? Even if you've never visited Silver Springs, though, you've probably seen it. 
and it's going it's to date some of you, but there was a 1960s television show called Sea Hunt. Most of us are like, and there were like three heads that were going, oh, Sea Hunt, duh. <laughs> okay. okay, that was filmed at Silver Springs, and you're more familiar with this, Tarzan, right? But not the one you're thinking. This one was filmed in the 1930s to the 1950s. That was also filmed at Silver Springs. We visited this place a few weeks ago, and what struck us as we looked over at this old amusement park with its rides, and it was all grown over with this central Florida scrub brush. It's not in use anymore. We're at the peak tourist season, and there's almost no one there. Why is Silver Springs now a natural historical site that is unfamiliar and for the most part unknown? Because another park of a new kind opened on October 1st, 1971, only 80 miles southeast of Silver Springs. And it is called Walt Disney World Resort. And people didn't walk around Walt Disney World after it opened and said, this is kind of like Silver Springs. Because it's a completely different kind. It's not like they took Silver Springs and enlarged it and added a few rides. It was a completely different kind of park. It is now situated on 25,000 acres rather than 242 acres of Silver Springs. It draws 52 million people a year from around the world rather than primarily 1 million people after the Civil War from the north they would come down and visit. Silver Springs. It's a totally new kind. I'm not endorsing Disney. What I am highlighting is the meaning of the word new. When John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and he later says a new Jerusalem, he's not talking about something you're familiar with. He's talking about a totally different kind. It's not a renovation. It's not an edit. It's not a newer model. It's not like, oh, the iPhone 11 is going to replace the iPhone 10, or maybe one of my my favorite illustrations. It's not, okay, Doritos, right? I think the actual word Doritos means little bits of gold. I agree. I agree. I like like that chip. Um, It first came out, it was called Taco, the year I was born in 1968. In 1972, they called it nacho cheese. Okay, so somebody, oh, you, now you're like, oh, yeah, I still see those on the shelves. My favorite flavor came out in 1986, the year I graduated high school. I love how the dates align with Doritos. Um, and, that, and, and that is Cool Ranch. That's, that's my favorite. And I didn't taste much difference when Cooler Ranch came out. Here's the problem with Doritos and the 102 flavors that exist throughout the world right now is it's, it's still... A triangular chip sprinkled with taste dust. That's all it is. It's a triangle, it's a chip, and there's 102 flavors, but what? It's not a new, it's not a new kind, it's still Dorito. When the scripture says there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, it's not coming out with a new kind of bit of gold. It's coming out with an entirely new thing. This is where we have been moved. See, the millennial will be different and unique, but it's still where? I believe it's still on this earth. 
And it's a better version of the one we have, but it's not a new kind. It's got a perfect ruler who rules with a rod of iron and people, for the most part, are obeying the king. But again, at the end of that time period, there are nations that rise up against God and his people. It's not a new kind. John says, then I saw, see, we've been on this journey and we've come through the millennium and we've come through. Now we're here. This is totally different in kind. The new heaven and the new earth, it says in in our text, will pass away. It'll be done. And it says, look at look at verse one. And the sea was no more. Now, this has troubled a lot of people who love going to the beach, who love the coast. And you've got to understand, when you're talking about a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, there is nothing in that new kind of place that you're going to miss from here. Nothing. The sea was no more. Why would he say that? Because in Revelation and in prophetic scriptures, even Isaiah The sea was a place of chaos and evil. They often used that as a symbol of something that was tossing and unstable and unknown and dangerous. Matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, the beast came out of where? It came out of the sea. See, it's unpredictable. All of a sudden, this beast arises out of the sea. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 57, verses 20 to 21. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So for Isaiah, when he sees the sea, he sees it as something that's tossing and noisy and tossing up dirt. But the sea also separates. Even today, the sea separates continents. It separates peoples of different languages. The new heaven and the new earth will be characterized not by restlessness and separation, but by peace and closeness. In that, there will be no more sea. God himself will be with us. And there, I love this, there's nothing that separates. Listen to what Paul says at the end of Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But John not only sees a new heaven and a new earth, look at verse 2. Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice the adjectives used here. A new and holy. This, this characterizes this city. It distinguishes this city from all other cities throughout the world. Even the cities that are better than other cities. This one is completely different. So let me ask you a question. New Jerusalem. Here it comes. In John's vision. Is it a place where saints reside? Or is it a symbol of the saints themselves? Could it be describing a future state or existence rather than a future home? Is it quality in essence or is it an address? John is choosing this image, this new Jerusalem coming down in contrast to what do you think? What are the people a few chapters ago weeping and wailing over when it's destroyed? 
Babylon the Great. Was Babylon a people or a place? Yes. So the New Jerusalem is probably, yes, it is the saints in their essence. It's also a place. But what is interesting is after this New Jerusalem descends, there really is no distinction in place anymore. It's not like we travel from the earth to the moon or if we ever get to Mars It's not like we travel from the new earth to the new heaven. It's almost as if what is being presented here is there's no distinction anymore. These these are totally one thing. He sees it coming down out of heaven from God. And then afterwards, there appears to be no difference between heaven and earth. It's a new kind. Remember that? A new kind. Not just something like the original kind. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What does that communicate to you? John sees the New Jerusalem coming down and it's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Just in normal language, what does that communicate to you? Anticipation. I remember standing in the front waiting for my wife to come down. Is this anticipation? There's no surprise who was going to come around the corner in white. Like, that never hit me. Like, I wonder if it's Hildegard. You know, no. It's, it's going to be Tony, right? That's, there's this anticipation based on fact and relationship, not like, I wonder who they chose to come down the aisle. No, there's, there's an anticipation of a reality, right? John sees this coming down. Thorough and careful preparation. Have you gone to a wedding recently? Have you seen the bride come down the middle of the aisle? Or if you're outside, you're just walking forward. I recently did a wedding outside. You know, and she, she didn't come like traipsing down in a tablecloth like, hey, what's up, folks? But no, there was this, there was something special and unique and distinct about that day. And I always do this when I'm, when I'm officiating. I always look over at the guy, the bridegroom, when she first appears and is everybody's like looking that way. And I'm like, so nobody sees the weirdness. So I'm like, and, and of course in this picture, that's Jesus Christ. And the bride is the church. And the look on the bridegroom's face is, have you thought about Jesus like that lately in your relationship to him? That his delay is not punishment, but his delay is gracious. And he can't wait for the marriage of the Lamb when he takes the bride. And so John uses that phrase and he sees it as anticipation, thorough, careful preparation, stunning beauty and the rarest of moments. But a stunning beauty that never grows old and that never ages. And there's always these wow moments. That word prepared as a bride. You think of Jesus' words. The disciples were discouraged. Jesus is about to go away from them. And he says this. Listen to his words. John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, seems to be echoing sort of the the Jewish marriage where the man would go away and he would prepare a home beforehand. There was already this process where she knew he would come back and get her, though she did not know when. And he went away and he prepared this place. And then all of a sudden he comes back and he takes her to this prepared place. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So you have this city, which is a people coming down, adorned like a bride. Heaven and earth, a new city, a new Eden, a new garden, if you would, will be united together in a better than Eden reality. N.T. Wright describes Revelation 21 and 22 like this. The marriage of heaven and earth. The ultimate rejection of all types of Gnosticism, of every worldview that separates the physical from the spiritual. It is the final answer to the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come. Earth and heaven and city of a new kind like we can't even imagine because we've never seen it before. That's the basic vision. Now look at the voice from the throne. Look at, look at verse 3. Because this loud voice confirms the significance of the first two verses, the basic vision. Look at Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and I want us to distinguish here because later on it's going to say that God speaks directly. So this is probably not God speaking directly because John is going to actually distinguish that in a few more verses down. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You could just bring the big idea of verses 1 to 4 down into a single big idea. Here it is. God himself will be with us in a way that you have never experienced before. The first part of the promise, John is communicating two thoughts. God's glory and God's presence. He actually uses the word that means tabernacled among us. And so when God came in the Old Testament tabernacle, there was this what is called the Shekinah glory that that came down. And that was both his presence in a unique way in the tabernacle, but it was also his glory. You remember when it first fell, they all fell down. So it's presence and glory. And John is communicating that to us. So when did when did when was that first seen? Or we could say, when was that inaugurated? When was this reality inaugurated? John, same author, says this in John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word, who is Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt. The Word there is tabernacled among us. He dwelled among us. He, He put up his tent and he lived with us. Christ, the Shekinah glory, came incarnate. He took on flesh and dwelled among humanity. And this, listen to John's connection in the gospel. He says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So his presence and his glory. 
Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That was a sample. That was a preview of the reality that's coming. Now, he will no longer come a second time among those who did not welcome him. I came among my own, and they did not receive me. But he will come among those whom John records in John chapter 1, who did receive him, who believed in his name, whom he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's the first part of this promise. Okay, presence and glory. The second part of the promise is this. In his presence and with his glory, the sources of sorrow will be removed. Okay, we're not going to miss this one, because this is a very sweet part of this text. The presence of these two things, glory and presence, demand other things cannot exist. It's like where there's light, there can't be darkness. Where there's purity, there can't be impurity. He says this in verse 3, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be them as their God. And then he moves into saying all these things that cannot exist together. Matter of fact, that's the exact point Paul was making in how we're supposed to live our life to show the gospel to this world. Let me read to you what the Apostle Paul said. Do not be unequally yoked. You know, a yoke is that close partnership with unbelievers. And he's going to go through these polar opposites. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And the answer is what? There's no partnership. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And the answer that Paul is going to naturally draw out of your heart and your logic, there is no fellowship between light and darkness. What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. That's what he says. And of course, Paul's quoting now an Old Testament reference that, that also finds its base in the Revelation 21 text. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Right now, practically, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. But we also know practically what? That even though we have been sanctified, we're justified, we are holy in the eyes of God, we still practically what? Touch unclean things. And I love what John says in a smaller letter. If you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. But don't use that as an excuse. Keep aligning your life with the gospel and showing forth this future reality. And the future reality is of a new kind because the new kind means that's not even going to be possible anymore. That when he is in our midst with that presence and that glory, it's a new kind. And notice what cannot exist in God's presence in this new way. Look at verse 4. He will wipe every away every tear from their eyes. In this new creation, tears have no place. Isn't that great news? What have you cried about in the last five years? What have you cried about in the last year? I probably cried more in the last five years than maybe ever since I was a toddler. I'm not sure. And not from my foot either, my crushed foot. Right? Adults primarily cry from emotional distress. 
in pain, in grief, in disappointment, in loss. Do you know in the presence of God's glory, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And it's, and it's beautiful because it's not like all of a sudden you forget. It's like you, you enter this new creation and He remembers there's still these streaks coming down from the pain and the sorrow and He wipes them away. There's this closeness like a father to a child. Isaiah says, The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Notice what else cannot exist in this new creation with the presence and the glory of God. And death shall be no more. See, this is the reversal of the curse in Genesis 3. The sting of death will be removed. Um, Just reading this, the sting of death. This is how my mind sometimes works. I'm like, what's the most painful sting in the world? Death, of course. But like, what is the most painful sting before we die that we can endure? And I researched it, and I may be wrong. But he's called the bullet ant. Worst pain known to humans, as the name suggests, the sting from bullet ants are the stings from bullet ants are as painful as a gunshot, and they last nearly 24 hours. When I hear about death losing its sting, I think about this ant running around boasting of great pain, but he has the inability to sting anymore. But it's even better than that. It's like there's only one bullet ant that threatens to sting you. And in this new creation, it's crushed. It's gone. Right? It's, it's not like, okay, where's the other bullet ant? Because I always know they travel in herds. Not the right term, by the way. Ants don't travel in herds. But, you know, but no, they're totally erased. There are no more bullet ants in existence. That's what's going on here in this new kind of place. Death has no more sting. I love what Isaiah says again. He will swallow up death forever. It will be the death of death. 1 Corinthians 15.54 says, Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. But notice what else is absent. The lingering effects of death. Look at verse 4. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Isn't that good news? Some of you have suffered incredible emotional loss in the last couple of years. And what this new creation promises is all that is gone. Without death, there will be no mourning, no crying no pain anymore, no physical pain, no emotional suffering. How is that even possible? Scripture tells you, for the former things have passed away. And this isn't just an, another of the same kind. It's a totally new kind altogether. And that's where you set your hope. Because that place has a king. And his name is Jesus Christ. King of kings, Lord of lords. And he has the right to reign because his robe is dipped in blood. He is the slain lamb of God. I love how Ezekiel describes this city that he saw in a vision in the future. He says, and the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 35. So in conclusion, here's what happens in this new kind of place. A culture of the beast is replaced by a culture of the lamb. 
A culture of death gives place to a culture of life, eternal life, quality and time. The culture of insecurity and fear has been replaced by a culture of peace and trust and openness. Paradise, the original creation depicted in Genesis, has been restored, but it's a new kind, a new and better Eden, a new and incorruptible Genesis. We finish with one quote. In his book, The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis, he wrote this towards the very last chapter. And he's talking about Aslan. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this, the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. A new kind. A new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, something we can't fully understand, where the presence and the glory of God is saturating that place, and because of such, certain things can no longer exist, and that's why we have historically called it heaven. Are you sure that is where you're going this morning? Jesus said He'll show you the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes unto the Father, the presence of the Father, the glory of the Father, except through Him. As such, He is the door. Have you believed? To all those who believe, He says in John chapter 1, I have given them the right to be called children of God. Let's pray.